It's great to see you this morning um, here, um, braving the cold, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here uh, again this morning as we worship together. On December 7th, and uh, maybe you remember this, December 9th, excuse me, 2007, maybe you remember this story from back then, there was a gentleman named Matthew Murray, and... Uh, He shot and killed Tiffany Johnson, who was 26 at the time, and also Philip Krause, 24, um, at a Youth with a Mission uh, training center in Arvada, Colorado. After he killed those two, he later left and he killed two more at the New Life Church down um, in Colorado Springs. Um, I remember that story. And the tragedy that uh, took place um, during that time. The director of the Arvada uh, Youth with a Mission program, Peter Warren, spoke with Christianity Today about that shooting. This is what he said. He said, Matthew was in the building for a half an hour talking with students. Then he asked to spend the night. Tiffany was called to the front because she handles uh, hospitality. Normally, we would not have someone spend the night without knowing them or arranging ahead of time. After that, Matthew said, then this is what I've got for you. And he pulled out a gun and he began shooting. After firing a few shots, he had his foot in the door and at some point his foot slipped and he, and he fell back. The door slammed shut on him and automatically locked so he, he couldn't get back in again. Right then, other staff and students were driving up, and they saw Matthew banging on the door, trying to get back in. And when Matthew saw them, then he ran away. After a student performed CPR on Tiffany, she regained consciousness, and she asked another trainee named Holly, is it bad? And Holly said, yes, it's bad. Tiffany looked at Holly and her boyfriend, Dan, who had also been shot, and Tiffany said this, we do this for Jesus, right, guys? We do this for Jesus. (laughs) There is a price, have you discovered this? There is a price to follow Christ. Maybe not like Tiffany's. Maybe not the price of getting shot and killed. But there is the price of denying oneself. There is the price of bearing one's cross. There are Christians who, having professed Christ, have lost much. Uh, Families have rejected them. Friends have pushed them to side. Uh, They have lost credibility with their co-workers at, uh, at work. There are those Christians who have been Uh, attacked because of their faith or ridiculed or mocked. Neil Postman once said, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it's delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. There is a price to pay. To follow Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus himself points that out 
in Luke chapter 9. I would invite you, if you have your Bibles or if you maybe have your phones, you can find Bibles on your phone, the Bible apps. But turn with me to Luke chapter 9. This morning we continue our study. We are in the Gospel of Luke. Um, And um, last week we were looking at chapter 9 here and um, we saw that Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, immediately um, after the disciples had confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he attempts to open their eyes to what it will take to follow him, what it would require of them to follow him. And he told them to their horror that he would have to suffer and that he would have to be rejected and die and finally rise again. And then Jesus adds to their shock by saying in verse 23, and he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, following Christ, I tell you, following Christ is not something you can um, do just by um, placing your life on automatic pilot and then just going with the flow. The idea of accepting Jesus as your ticket, you know, to heaven, that was never Jesus's idea. (laughs) That was never his goal. At best, it's a byproduct of following him. No, Jesus, see, he saved us to change us, to make us different in the world than we were before we came to know him. That's why he calls us to follow him where he leads. And where he leads, (laughs) it's demanding. Where he leads, it requires commitment. We are called to deny ourselves. We are called to take up our cross. We are called to lose our life for Jesus' sake. And that type of uh, commitment requires a new way of thinking. It, It requires a new way of orienting one's life. It's not easy, friends, to follow Christ. So what do you do? When following Jesus requires self-sacrifice, how do you make it? When living a Christ-centered, Christ-sent life involves pain, when the weight of bearing one's cross becomes overwhelming, how do you make it? Well, that's where the story here in Luke 9 of the transfiguration of Christ, that's where it helps us. In fact, look with me, starting in verse 28, Luke 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came 
and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Interesting story, isn't it? (laughs) Eight days after Peter's confession and Jesus' teaching on what following him would require, he takes these three disciples and he takes them up to a mountain to pray, and there they see something no mortal eye has ever seen before. They catch a glimpse of heaven. (laughs) Jesus gives them a brief look at their own future. See, the story of uh, Jesus' transfiguration, it's not meant to be separated from the story of Peter's confession uh, or Jesus' call for us to take up our cross. Not only are those two stories uh, back-to-back here in Luke's gospel, but you have to understand, you go back, uh, you'll find them back-to-back in Matthew's gospel. You'll find them back-to-back in Luke's gospel as well, or in in Mark's gospel. And and when we dare not uh, have one story without the other. See, we're not meant to carry the weight of Christ's cross or our own without seeing Christ's glory. Christians who do not make room to contemplate Christ's glory, they walk with a limp. They get a little off balance. I want you to notice what happens here. Luke tells us that... um, During this time of prayer, Jesus is transformed into this glorious figure with a brilliance like lightning. In other words, something of of the great glory of Christ that he had known before with his father, before his incarnation has now been made manifest and permeates his whole being and it radiates out through his clothing. God's Glory, it shines out from within him, and his appearance is changed, and his clothes are dramatically altered. Now listen, don't misunderstand me here. Because Jesus here doesn't morph out of his humanity into something else. But for a brief moment, see, what happens is the veil of Jesus' humanity, it's lifted And his true essence was allowed to shine through. That glory was always in the depth of his being. And that rose to the surface and gives us a peek at both Jesus, his pre-human glory, as well as his uh, future glory. And it reminds me, doesn't it? It reminds me of of Jesus' prayer to his father in John 17, where he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. (laughs) See, Jesus knew of the glory that was his before his incarnation. And now he anticipates his glory in that prayer again in eternity. And so here on this mountain, something of this, of this glory is revealed in a dramatic fashion. And, and, and notice here, these two men suddenly appear with Jesus, namely uh, Moses and Elijah, right? 
And they also appeared in glory, it says, which gives you a glimpse of our own future appearance. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah entered into this discussion concerning Jesus' departure. You say, well, what departure are they talking about? Well, Jesus' departure from this earthly life. You realize that just a week before, um, Jesus had told his disciples what was awaiting him when he goes up to Jerusalem. He had to suffer and he has to die on the, on the cross. And that's what they were talking about there on, on that mount. That's what they were discussing. So you say, well, why these two guys? I mean, why not Isaiah and Jeremiah? I mean, uh, why not uh, Daniel and Joseph? Why Moses and Elijah? Uh, there's a lot of ideas that have been put forward through the years, but I want to suggest you is because Moses was the great lawgiver, and Elijah was the great prophet. And Jesus was the one who came to fulfill both the law and the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Um, in fact, look with me for a quick moment. If you want to turn your Bibles back to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, Malachi, and look with me at the end of Malachi, um, the very last words of the Old Testament. God's last words, catch this, God's last words to his people before he fell silent for 400 years. Look with me um, at verse 4. Malachi 4, verse 4. He says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. God... <laughs> didn't tell Israel to remember the law of Moses simply so that they'd be moral, uh, upright, religious people through those silent centuries. Well, God told them this so that they would be ready. They'd be ready for the coming of the Christ. You say, well, why Elijah? Well, look with me. Um, just uh, the next two verses, verses 5 and 6 of Malachi 4. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah was the quintessential Old Testament prophet, <laughs> calling God's people back to God. The prophets, they, they called them to, um, to people to prepare the way for the Lord, warning the people to repent, promising them God's grace if they did so. And Elijah was their captain. Elijah was their, their pattern. <laughs> See, God left his people at the end of Malachi, peering into the future for the second coming of another Elijah. And now here he was. And Elijah was there on that mountain talking to Jesus. You know, when you think about it, if you'd been in those um, shoes of those three disciples, wouldn't that have been an incredible sight? See Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. But you know what I find even more incredible here? <laughs> Shocking, really, is that Peter and his companions were sleepy. Isn't that interesting? 
Luke tells us they were sleeping. Now, I haven't done a study of all the times in the Gospels that the disciples fell asleep when they should have been wide awake. Um, but it seems to me that it happened way more often than, than, than it should have. Um, now, just a side note, perhaps that's an encouragement to uh, some of you who regularly fall asleep during a sermon um, or find yourself rather sleepy when you ought to, ought to be fully awake. Um, I, you say to me, well, uh, Sutton, we're, we're, we're simply following the apostolic pattern. Come on. <laughs> But when they do finally fully uh, become fully awake, whether it was because of the brightness of the, the light or whatever, th- these disciples, they see Jesus' glory and these two men who were standing with him. And immediately Peter, who Luke tells us at the end of um, uh, verse uh, 33, um, didn't know what he was saying. He tells us that. Peter doesn't know what he's saying, but... Peter there suggests that they put up these three shelters. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one also for Elijah. You got to ask, I mean, what was Peter thinking? You know, I want to suggest that Peter was, was saying, hey, Lord Jesus, man, this is incredible, absolutely incredible. Why don't we just lock things in at this point? Um, why don't you and Moses and Elijah, why don't you just settle down here and, 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 and stay right here? I mean, this, this is a, a glorious moment. Let's, let's keep it going. Let's, let's preserve it. Let, let's keep it in a jar and, and, and pickle it. <laughs> Jesus, listen, you don't have to go up to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the elders and be put to death on that tree and, and be resurrected on the third day. You don't have to go through all of that pain? No, forget that idea, Jesus. Jesus, why don't we just just stay here? <laughs> now, I got to tell you, although we're tempted to um, make fun of Peter, you know, saying how small-minded uh, he must have been, the fact of the matter is that um, any human being worth their salt would have done the same thing, don't you think? Um. Now, if you, you, you don't want that, then, then I got to tell you, um, you're on the wrong planet because that's what we all want, right? We want those glorious moments. It's only natural for us in the midst of those glorious, wonderful times to want to preserve it, to want to keep, keep it going. It's only natural that we want to hold on to those glorious moments that God gives us now. And then, and all those times in our lives... I was uh, sharing that a couple weeks ago, I was out west skiing, um, and the first day we went up on that chairlift, um, the sky, it, you know, was perfectly clear. I mean, it was beautiful, bright sunshine, and we got to the top of that, that mountain on that chairlift, we were staring right at the Grand Tetons. I mean, they, they, they seemed like they were so close that we could just reach out and almost almost touched them. <laughs> Beautiful. Awesome. And what I try to do is I, 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 I want to try capturing that moment when I was on top of that mountain. So I took out my phone and I, I clicked a couple pictures off of that, 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 uh, that shot. But I got to tell you, 
The photo that I took, uh, although it's, it's great, it's wonderful, beautiful, the, the photo doesn't do justice to what it was really like. <laughs> it just doesn't. See, I wanted to hold on to that glorious moment. When we have those times, all of us want to do that, don't we? Whether it's a, a certain hymn or a, or a praise song that makes us feel spiritual or, or a retreat weekend that we've gone off and we, we sense God's presence in that weekend, we want to repeat those times. We want to hold on to those times. We want to do them over and over again, pushing a button and calling forth the glory whenever we have that opportunity. I mean, can't you see it here on this mountain? Peter sees Moses and he sees Elijah and Jesus all revealed in glory. And Peter has to think, uh, this is it. I mean, this is the, this is the big ending. Uh, the credits are going to soon begin to roll. <laughs> I don't think it occurred to him that this was just a temporary situation. No, he, he, he wanted to set up a base camp for, for God's new kingdom to arrive because because. That's what he was enjoying at the moment, but it wasn't time yet, was it? The big ending, actually the big beginning, was yet to come. Before Jesus had a chance to respond um, to Peter, the disciples, God draws down the uh, draperies of his own glory all around them. It's God's Shekinah glory. Now, back in Exodus, it was God's Shekinah glory that passed by Moses as God covered him in the cleft of the rock with his hand. It was God's Shekinah glory that covered the newly finished tent of meeting and filled the tabernacle with, with, with God's glory so that Moses could not enter it. It was God's Shekinah glory once again, that filled Solomon's temple on dedication on that dedication day so that the priests could not enter it. And so this cloud, this God, Shekinah glory, comes down, and it's not only a cloud of the past, but it's also a cloud of, the, of prophecy. Because in the future, in death, the Apostle Paul tells us that believers will meet the risen Christ in the clouds to be with him forever. It'll be God's cloud of glory. <laughs> and from this cloud of glory, then the Father speaks, and he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I mean, this is the same voice. You recognize that same voice that was said almost the exact same thing at Jesus' baptism. Remember that? You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased, he said at Jesus' baptism. So why was it important, do you think, that to, for these disciples to hear God say this? I think it was because Jesus had begun teaching them, had begun teaching them about the coming cross. Soon they would watch Jesus be rejected and, and suffer. The crowds that had become so familiar would no longer be there for them. Soon it would seem that no one around them claimed Jesus as the Messiah. And then they would hear Jesus cry, hanging on that cross in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there on that mountain, it was as if God were saying, Hey, hey guys, listen up. 
listen up. You're going to see and you're going to hear all kinds of profoundly confusing things in the days ahead. But do not doubt for a minute. Do not doubt for a minute that this is my son whom I love. This is my son whom I have chosen. He is the one you are to listen to. He is the Messiah and the living word. No matter what it looks like going forward, you need to trust him. Trust him. See, Peter, James, and John, they were to put their arms around that mountaintop experience and pull it within themselves and hold on to it. And so must we. Why? (laughs) Because it's our hope. See, the way of the Christian life, I got to tell you, friends, it's not from glory to glory to glory to go. It's not from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. Although moments of glory and taste of the kingdom of heaven, you know, will come our way now and then. But see, we have work to do. We have a person to follow. That's Jesus Christ. Do you notice where Jesus leads Peter and James and John after this event? (laughs) He just starts walking back off that mountain down into the valley. Jesus leads his disciples into the valley of the mundane and the unmiraculous, including into another encounter with a demon-possessed boy the very next day. <laughs> and from there, he leads in the Garden of Gethsemane so they can watch him sweat drops of blood. And then he leads them to the hill of Golgotha so that he can watch, they can watch him die a cruel and humiliating death. Only then does he lead them to the resurrection, to the glory of God, inviting them into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, if we follow Christ, you and I, if we follow Christ, we will find ourselves in that valley. We'll encounter needs to be met. We'll encounter difficult people to love. We'll encounter people to minister to Things to learn, and it happens in the valley. It happens at the Garden of Gethsemane. It happens on that hill of Golgotha. It might mean getting involved more heavily in the life of the church. It it might mean giving yourself afresh to a marriage that is not working out. We cannot avoid the valley, friends. And if we are to follow Jesus' footsteps, we'll need to focus As we walk in that valley, we'll need to focus on his glory. Seeing the glory of Christ, that's the blessed counterbalance to the weight of our difficulties and struggles. Don't fix your eyes on the crucifix, on the dying, suffering Jesus. Rather, look in your prayers to the Jesus shining like the sun, to Jesus who's alive with light, to Jesus who reigns in glory. Look to Jesus breaking free from the grave, to Jesus rising to the heavens. Look to Jesus, the one who is victorious, to Jesus seated at the right hand of of God the Father, to Jesus, the lamb who's on the throne, to Jesus, the rider on the white horse, to Jesus, the shining victor. 
Look to Jesus, the one whose glory was put on display on that mountain in front of Peter and James and John. Modern, uh, many of the modern-day versions of the classic fairy tales um, skim over the hardships of life and jump right to that part, you know, right at the end where it says they lived happily ever after. <laughs> but the original stories, if you look back on them, they were much more honest about the pain and struggles of this life. For example, uh, Cinderella was first orphaned and then enslaved before she tried on the glass slipper that changed her world. And also in the traditional story of Sleeping Beauty, a fairy who was not invited to a party for the baby's birth put a curse on Sleeping Beauty, namely that at the age of 16, she would prick her finger and die. A good fairy came along and changed the course so that Sleeping Beauty didn't die. Instead, she would be placed in a deep sleep only to be awakened by a kiss of a prince. But even then, Sleeping Beauty <laughs> slept for 100 years before she arrived at the happily ever after, you know. And during that prolonged sleep, her relatives mourned and her mother died of a broken heart. The Brothers Grimm concluded the original story with these honest words. They said this, they lived happily ever after, as they always do in fairy tales, not quite so often, however, in real life. Naomi Zacharias, in her book, The Scent of Water, concludes um, a summary of this by, with this statement. She said, we want the good part of the fairy tale. We've only preserved the idea of happily ever after. On the movie screen or in our minds, we have rewritten the stories and forgotten about the battles the heroines chose to fight. We've chosen to overlook the pain and the price that the players paid to find love and justice. And she continues, but the honesty in the original fairy tales reminds us another important lesson about following Christ, that this present world is not the best of all possible worlds. Our imperfect world only leads to the best of all possible worlds. Heaven is the happily ever after. And until then, we still live with frogs and century-long naps. Friends, can I tell you, um, when life is painful, entangled, because, I mean, face it, right? We still live with frogs. <laughs> um, when nothing seems to be working out, when there seems to be no answer for terrible losses or cruelty or power, remember the mountaintop experience. Remember Moses and Elijah talking on that mountaintop with Jesus, putting all the pieces together, seeing how God would work all things together for good, even through the rejection and the suffering and the death of his glorious son. There is nothing in this terrible world that will not bow to Jesus. Remember that. There is no crime or catastrophe that will not be brought under his scepter. When you find yourself paying the price of following Christ, remember to focus on his glory.
Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for the truth of your word. In days that are shaky like ours, we praise you for the truth that you will not be shaken, that you are rock and security, that you are still in control and we can trust not only in your goodness, but also in your wisdom. Father, we ask that you might keep us alert. Help each of us to put on the armor of God so that we might stand firm. I pray for each person that's either listening online this morning or here in person, those that are feeling weak or harassed, might you remind them of your glory. Remind each of us that you are a great, big God so that we can be released from any anxiety and be filled with boldness and ready to serve where serving is required. We look forward to the day that we will be out of our valley where we will be able to celebrate your glory and your final victory. We pray these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.